This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Casey Miller is a 22-year-old detrans woman and lesbian from Pennsylvania. She first began transition at the age of 16 and ultimately began detransitioning at 21. Casey has come to realize her male identity was largely motivated by early childhood sexual abuse and homophobia. And here is our conversation with Casey. Uh, welcome back to Transparency. Uh, Aaron Terrell here as ever with uh, co-host Aaron Kimberly. And uh, we've got Casey here with us today. Thanks for being here, Casey. No problem. Happy to be here. We were hoping you could just tell us kind of kind of like your life trajectory, uh, maybe a bit about your upbringing, um, and then kind of like, you know, the experience of gender dysphoria, what that was like for you, how young were you? Um, when, like, when did that, when did that kind of get, kind of get rolled into the, the, the trans, um, like when did when did the the, the uh, kind of trans narrative hit your uh, your worldview? Let's say I'm not sure how else to phrase that, but you know what I'm asking. Yeah, um, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. So, um, brief synopsis of my childhood: I am an only child. I'm also a surrogate child of traditional surrogacy. So, my legal mom is not my biological mom, and I was raised. Um, in Massachusetts with mom and dad until I was about seven. Um, I was removed from the home with mom because uh, we found that there was some abuse going on. Um, and around eight years old, we moved from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania. And um, from there, we were very heavily involved in religion. Um, we got ourselves involved in a fundamentalist Christian church that is very uh, heteronormative, very conservative, very much like uh, women can't teach because you know they're inferior to men very heavy on purity culture, um, very homophobic and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of dominated my worldview um, for the beginning of my adolescence. And um, I had always been a tomboy um, growing up and so on. It was kind of juxtaposed because when I was living with my dad, I wasn't allowed to cut my hair. So I was this little girl running around with literally over 12 inch long hair. Um, that I wanted to cut because it was just getting ridiculously long, but that was a method of control for him. There were certain things I couldn't, couldn't wear um, because for him, it was, I, maybe it gave him some weird satisfaction. I don't know, not to get too dark. Um, but then once we kind of moved um, to Pennsylvania, I was able to cut my hair shorter, not as short as I wanted to, um, you know, but I was still kind of within the constraints of distinct girlness, even though I ran with the boys, I played with the boys. I, in fourth grade, I was part of a, a Beyblade um, competition ring um, and did all of that stuff. Um, and I, I didn't really have this distinct idea of gender or sex differences until probably middle school. Um, you know, everybody's starting to go through puberty and you're getting the talks and what all of that means. And then kind of that realization that there are differences and for me, unfortunately, um, my differences um, or the differences between sex, uh, male and female, um, carried a negative connotation because I began to associate uh, um, femaleness, like my female sex, with what I had gone through as a child. Um, not to be 
I, not to bring down the mood, but um, I went through child sexual abuse um, and I began to associate that and getting the talk with this happened to me because I was female. And how can I make this not happen to me again? And, you know, not liking the whole female thing and combine that with the church saying, well, you know, good women, they're modest and they're, they get married and they have husbands and they have a bunch of kids and they're subservient. And, you know, they have like this holy femininity to them and me wanting to have no part of that whatsoever. Um, plus also being told that, you know, being gay is a choice and that being gay is wrong and all this stuff um, was kind of just like this weird amalgamation that's not even a word but like this weird um conglomeration of issues that made me feel like it wasn't right to be female and looking for a way out um and so throughout all this time I was suffering with depression anxiety uh panic attacks and um I was 16 and I I knew that I was uh gay but I was trying to repress it and I believe it was 2017, April, May, 2017, that I was like fed up. I was looking up online and I was like, what do you do if you're a lesbian and you don't want to be, and you don't like being a woman? And somehow that got me down the trans rabbit hole. And my very first exposure to anything trans was, I believe it's called um, Trans in Love and at War. It is a uh, New York Times op-ed on the couple Logan and Layla Ireland. Um, I don't know if you know who they are, but if you've seen Logan Ireland, he is jacked. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's interesting because I, I watched that and I had no idea what trans was. I was very sheltered. Um, you know, I thought it was just like women cutting their hair short and wearing men's clothes and LARPing for lack of better term. And I didn't know medical transition was a thing. And then I saw that and I saw, you know, how Logan went from this, for lack of better terms, very masculine butch woman to, you know, this buff dude that no one was going to mess with and that you know it just kind of fit with how he felt on the inside that kind of clicked something in my head for me I was like holy crap like that's something that can actually happen and so then I just fell down the rabbit hole yeah then, yeah as you would yeah yeah and then you start seeing all the videos of um, the before and afters and when you're on testosterone and you're seeing all these people talk about how they just feel so much better and they all had body image issues growing up and you know it just seems like this made their lives better um and me saying well I was always a tomboy I never really fit in with the girls anyways um maybe maybe this is the way out maybe this is what I can do to better my life and I just latched onto it and within that same year I got a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I was on testosterone. Um, before I turned 18, I was on testosterone, had a double mastectomy, had everything legally changed over, and then proceeded to live as a man. I, I know that gender criticals don't like that term, living as a man, but you know, socially um, and legally living as a man for at least the next four years. So that that time period between when that when he saw um so you saw that in that clicked something for you. And then, so how long did that take from that moment of that aha sort of moment for you to when you actually started to take testosterone and get your surgeries? What was that time frame? Um, it was probably May of 2017 when I saw the video and I had first contact with the pediatric gender clinic um, in September. That That's another thing I talk about with my case that it's, it's not like I had like multiple laborious appointments. I literally had two appointments with one provider and 
it was kind of just like checking boxes on a list. And then she's like, okay, here you go. Here's your testosterone. Do you remember um, what was covered? Um, so I do have my medical records actually um, from those two appointments. Um, a lot of it was just talking about my childhood, my adolescence, uh, what we would retroactively label as signs of gender dysphoria. Two distinct examples I remember were that um, when I was in seventh grade, of course, um, I was going through puberty and I was a little bit of a heavier kid because um, I have PCOS. So weight issues kind of came along with that. And I was insecure about my body. And so it, there was a period of time in seventh grade, I distinctly remember I always went to school in black sweatpants and like a gray hoodie. And it was always super baggy and it was meant to hide. Um, and that was retroactively um, uh, referred to as gender dysphoria. Like I did that because I was gender dysphoric about my body because it was female. And that was my way to hide and be more gender neutral or male looking. Um, there was also another instance where I talked about wanting to join the swim team because the swimmers, the female swimmers had flatter chests and then proceeding not to eat for a couple of days at a time because I wanted to lose weight to make my chest flatter. And that was attributed to gender dysphoria and not what we now know later to be an eating disorder that was undiagnosed at the time. Did you put those two things together or did the clinician say that those things were gender dysphoria? Um, she stated that those were gender dysphoria. I She was talking about, um, asking about instances where I felt uncomfortable in my body. And of course, rattling some of those off. Um, then she was like, oh, well, that makes sense because that's because you wanted to be a boy or you're meant to be a boy. That's why you were hiding your body. That's why you were not eating. Um, which the facility that I went to, the Children's Hospital, uh, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, which infamously has those training clips of, um, I don't know if you've seen the training clips of basically a young boy goes uh, to the ER because he fainted because he um, is struggling with an eating disorder and he wants to transition to a girl. Mom's not on board. And essentially it's the medical staff like ganging up on mom um, to say like, oh, well, you're like, you know, your child is um, not eating and doing this because, you know, she wants to transition and, you know, the eating disorder is because of the gender dysphoria. And if we treat the gender dysphoria, then the eating disorder will go away. Um, yeah, that hospital. <laughs> so in retrospect, I can see why that was that connection was made. So it's not like you were, you were 16 those things and you were trying yes. you were you weren't saying those things and trying to kind of build and convince the clinician that that was related to gender dysphoria. They just they just made that leap on their own. It sounds like. Correct. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that um, like my mom, who is a nurse as well, um, you know, she was trying to be flexible and supportive, but at the same time, she literally said, which this happens to be the case now, and you know, hindsight's 2020, that she was so concerned that I was doing this because of the childhood abuse, that this was a reaction, that this was a trauma response and a defense mechanism against what happened to me as a child. And in the records, it says, um, that that was like investigated with me, except it also says that literally the investigation was literally just the therapist asking me, quote, do you think the childhood abuse has influenced your transgender identity? Me, quote, no. And that was it. That was the investigation. That was all she did. So. Incredible. Good job, Linda. <laughs> yeah. Did you find um, that your community, I mean, the community that you said, you know, was was homophobic and did you find that that environment 
accepted your trans identity more readily than they would have a gay identity? Um, interestingly enough, I left the church completely uh, a couple months leading up to starting Hormones because I knew that it was just not going to fly. But in my head, subconsciously, I thought it would be easier for them to ex accept the image of a straight man than they would a gay woman or a gender nonconforming woman. Um, and the idea for me was, even if it wasn't in like my specific church, um, if I ever wanted to return to church, I could kind of just like pass as a straight man and no one would have to know. And that would be more socially acceptable. And I could still have my wish and be with women and it would be fine. And, you know, the church could still be okay with me attending. Um, I know that there's um, churches accepting of LGBT, but, um, you know, I wouldn't feel at risk potentially of, you know, taking that chance of walking into a homophobic church. Um, and, you know, I can have the best of both worlds, essentially. So you, oh, were, you were started on hormones and, and how did you feel initially? Um, so I responded really quickly to hormones. I was, um, I tapered up from like a starting dose to full dose, which for me was hundred milligrams weekly over the course of 10 months, which was a, a good thing. I, you know, instead of starting me at just like full dose right away, every single week, bam. Um, I think it was within the first week of like 50 milligrams that my voice began to drop. Um, I noticed changes really quickly and it was nice. It was fun because my, my body was um, changing in ways that I both perceived that I wanted to um, like my voice was a big insecurity for me. So it dropped and that was, that was really cool because I wanted it to drop, but then also getting stronger um, in the gym because I was starting to lift weights and then just seeing your numbers shoot up is amazing. Um, you know, and I liked those aspects of it. Um, there was also the acne. Um, that was really bad, especially when I hit 10 months on testosterone. I mean, my face just exploded in acne. It was swollen. There was pustules. It was really bad. And I had to go to derm, uh, dermatology. Um, and like I was on oral antibiotics for several months and they tried different ones and topical antibiotics and tretinoin. And eventually it kind of leveled out. Um, but it was, I mean, that was not the most gender affirming experience. I mean, maybe that is gender affirming because, you know, some guys get really, really bad acne, but um, it, at first it was cool and I liked the changes. And especially later on a couple years into my transition, I really got into like bodybuilding, weightlifting and stuff. Um, having, you know, extra testosterone floating in your body is really nice for that. I, I never took anything about my dose, but it was really nice and being able to constantly increase your numbers in the gym and, you know, build muscle and build strength that that was all really fun. And, you know, it, it's hard. Cause like it did work for a while. I felt good for a while, but it, it's hard whether or not it's because it's exactly what I needed or because it was change and like change was novel to me. I don't know. Well, it makes sense. And I wonder though, like too, how much of it is, is is feeling like you have this control over your body, right? Like you 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 are you are injecting this thing that's doing what you want, you know, dropping your voice, doing all these things. But there's an element of of how much control you have over the situation as well. I would imagine. Absolutely, um, and especially because 
looking back at any of like my maladaptive behaviors over the years, everything that I have ever done is to try and maintain some semblance of control because for such a long time, I didn't have control in my life. I didn't have control when I was living with my dad. I didn't have control when I was going to church. Um, I didn't have control because of, you know, the depression and dealing with persistent suicidal ideation for years and years and years and years, um, sometimes on a daily basis. Um, like I felt like I was so out of control that this was something like, you know, I can do this thing and I can elicit these specific changes in a direction I want them to. And in a way that I feel like is empowering me and making me physically stronger, um, you know, it, and it, it, it's kind of a power trip, but it's, it's affirming because it's something that I can, you know, it's in my little sphere of control. Well, especially if a lack of control meant that bad things were happening. Right. I mean, if if you felt safe within your family and and felt, you know, safe and affirmed and welcomed by your church, them having some control might not have been a horrible thing. I mean, parents do exercise control over their children, but it's meant to be a, a safety kind of control, not a harm kind of control. So it sounds like you you maybe learn to equate a lack of control with harmful and bad things happening to you. So it would make sense then if, if, if now you're physically stronger and, and perceived by others as male, that, that it must have felt like a relief from those bad things aren't going to happen to me now. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, that's something that in some respects, that is a downside of attempting to detransition is that I, I might lose that. Um, because I mean, I would argue that a man walking around in society, a perceived man walking around in society is most likely going to be safer than a perceived woman walking around in society. Um, potentially. I, I mean, that's how I feel. That's, I, I don't even know if that's intellectually true, but that's like a bought in belief to me. Um, so I, I even still now feel like I'm giving up a degree of safety by potentially detransitioning, even though I don't want to, you know, live as a man anymore. That's just not me. Um, I, it still feels like I am now going to make myself more vulnerable because I've associated womanhood with being unsafe, with being attacked, with being vulnerable. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to unpack that. My experience has been, uh, I think my experience has shifted. I think I initially maybe had that same perception as you that being female and seen and recognized as female in the world made me unsafe in some way. But I actually find that I've encountered more situations appearing male, feeling unsafe around other males than I did before. I think males are more likely to be physically violent with other males um, whereas I, you know, before I transitioned, I definitely had males make stupid comments about, you know, my hair or being a lesbian and stuff. So there was more verbal harassment and, and, um, the likelihood of sexual assault is, is higher when you're female. But I think that the risk of physical assault is higher when you're perceived as male. And that's been my experience anyway. I don't know if Aaron, if you had yeah. a similar experience. Yeah, it was, it was something I hadn't hadn't uh, planned for or really anticipated. Is just um, there's a, a level of aggression between strange men towards other strange men uh, that you don't experience. So, like, I agree with you, Casey. In I think in in in, in domestic settings, women are far more likely. You're it's 
women are more likely victims in domestic settings than men are. But I think as far as stranger uh, 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 aggression and danger, it, yeah, it's it's probably more dangerous to be out in the world as a man, but it's more dangerous to be a woman in home, essentially, is how I would kind of categorize that. And that would explain why I didn't really encounter that too much, because I didn't really go out into the world a lot. I, I mean, I did a little bit, obviously, I've worked, I've gone to college, I've done stuff like that, but I haven't, you know, been out. I, I've usually stayed pretty close and pretty local, um, so I haven't really experienced the greater world, if you will, as a man. Um, but I, I can also understand that because I was saying that and then I'm like, yeah, but men are probably more likely to get into a fight with other men in strange situations. So, um, yeah, but also it's, it's not really even that relevant because it doesn't happen all that often, but more like your interpretation of, of, of the setting is more not, to, you know, not, I guess to use the, for lack of a better word, valid, you know, so your, your interpretation is just as real as, because it, it, it's all an off chance. I'm not making i'm trying i know what i'm trying to say but i'm not articulating it uh, properly but anyway uh uh so you you said for about four years you lived as a man you were going to school what was that experience like you said uh before we were recording you were uh, going to school to be a nurse yeah so that was my second major actually my first major um i graduated high school in 2018 and um in fall of 2018 I went to school for a year as a trumpet performance major I was going to be an orchestral trumpet player um I had been playing trumpet for the past eight years um I had managed it in um the United States and in the states they basically have um like competitive musicianship for middle schoolers and high schoolers so if you think like the sports circuits how they have like you know you can compete in the county and then the district and then the region and then at the state level they have that for music as well um so like you go and audition for ensembles um so i think there's like 12 to 15 districts in the state of pennsylvania and then there's six regions and then there's the state level and so you like show up at a random school building, a bunch of kids show up and they audition for band, orchestra, chorus, um, or other ensembles. And whoever scores the highest in the auditions, they get selected for the ensembles. And then you kind of wash, rinse and repeat at each of the festivals. Like you go for two to three days and you play a bunch of music and then you re-audition again um, to get selected for the regional level and then the state and then there's all eastern and nationals well my junior year I managed to make it to the state level and then my senior year I made it to the national level um, so I was fairly good at trumpet and I thought oh okay I can probably make a living out of this and so um, I auditioned and went to Penn State uh, for a trumpet performance for a year and then just completely burnt out on that um, and was just like, I can't do this anymore because I was, I, I basically sold my soul in order to do some of the things that I did my freshman year. I was in graduate level ensembles. I was, you know, playing with people 10 years my senior. I was, you know, scoring very high, like in juries, which are basically like our playing finals, except I, my mental health was so crappy and I just burnt myself out. And so I left, took some time off. And then in 2021 to 2022, I um, did uh, half of a program of nursing school at a local community college. Yeah, what was your experience of nursing school like? Um, well, I applied originally to start in uh, spring of 2020 because they have like rolling admissions and they have programs that start in the spring and programs that start in the fall. 
Um, but then I went into an outpatient eating disorder program in like late fall of 2019 and was just like, this is not a good time for me to be in nursing school right now. I had the prereqs, but I'm like, I'm pulling back, which was fortuitous timing because COVID happened um, in spring of 2020. And like, they basically just went completely virtual and everything shut down. And then people were trying to test for the NCLEX, which is like our... Um, national licensing exam um, for RNs and no one was able to. So then, you know, RNs are getting sick in the hospital, but then, you know, these new grad nurses don't have, they can't take the NCLEX because the NCLEX is closed. And then it, it was just like this whole mess. And then um, was going to start in fall of 2020, but then they told us that nursing school is going to be completely through Zoom. Um, and I was like, heck no, I'm going to wait a year. And then I started in fall 2021, mostly back in person. And that was fine. I liked it. It was really hard. Um, I dropped for two reasons after the first year. One, I managed to um, get POTS somehow, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And it really hit me like late into my first semester. And then the entirety of my second semester when we were starting to do clinicals and clinical rotations on the floor. And like I was struggling to get through a six hour clinical with one patient um, because I kept wanting to pass out no matter what I did, trying to manage my fluid intake, trying to, um, you know, eat more salt and drink more water. And I, you know, would go home and just completely pass out. And I was barely passing classes because I just, I was so tired all the time and I didn't know why. And cardiologists were saying, oh, it's normal. But I had like a resting heart rate of 130 BPM, like sitting in a chair. That's not normal, but apparently it was to them. Um, so health-wise, I was not up to snuff and I was like, I, I can't work on the floor. Like I can't do this. I can barely handle one patient with a teacher. How can I handle six? Um, but also kind of just seeing how nurses are treated in the local healthcare systems and hearing their experiences, especially over the past couple of years with COVID and, you know, seeing the acuity of patients go up and, dealing with equipment shortages, employee shortages, travel nurses in and out. It just, I didn't really get the vibe that it was a great environment to work in. So I decided to take a step back. How has your health been since then? Um, so interestingly enough, it kind of got a little bit better in May of 2022 after I stopped the semester. And then I was working as a patient care technician at one of the hospitals I did clinicals at, and that was fine. And then all of a sudden in June, it just tanked and I was completely housebound. Like I could barely get up out of bed and do stuff because I was so lightheaded. I was just so tired. Um, and so from like June, July, I think I worked with physical therapy in August. I was finally starting to gain back some stamina, but like going to a grocery store for and doing 10 minutes worth of shopping was like really hard for me. Um, so that kind of limited what I was able to do. And so I was slowly building up stamina. It was kind of rocky. I was um, taking methylphenidate, which is um, Ritalin fast acting that was prescribed by a cardiologist to help with the chronic fatigue, drinking an obscene amount of caffeine, water, so all of the treatment modalities that they talk about for uh, POTS. And then I uh, was doing intensive outpatient therapy in November. And after the first week of it, like a mental switch just like flipped for me. Um, and I felt like mentally better because I, I don't know how or why, but like after the first week, some mental switch flipped and I've been pretty okay physically since. I can't explain why. 
I'm fine now. Well, good. Yeah, yeah I'll take it. I'm not better. Yeah. And now I don't. Now I won't have primary care doctors yelling at me about taking um, Ritalin because that was a big point of contention as well. Because they would always see that and be like, really? Like, why are you taking a stimulant? Like, you know, you need to get off this. What can we do to get you off of this? And I'm like, I get, I need this in order to survive, but now I don't. So it's one less thing I can get haggled for. So you uh, you recently, you kind of uh, kind of came into our purview when you... Um... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, kind of kind of went a little bit viral in uh, some positive and some negative ways. Um, <laughs> you said you'd you'd kind of uh, got into the conversation. You were saying you wanted to be kind of an ally for detransitioners. You were seeing how many of them were coming forward and kind of like how the, the trans community was treating them. Um, and you initially wanted to get in the conversation as a, as a detrans ally. But do you want to tell us kind of where that went from there? So um, originally, my reason for entering Twitter at the time when I entered Twitter, I was, you know, still um, identifying with, you know, being a trans man and kind of feeling somewhat secure in my identity. And by that, I mean, I had been questioning things for months, but I was kind of pushing it off. Um, But what really drove me to want to, like, build allyship and start speaking about these things was... Um, I read uh, Debbie Path, um, Standards of Care 8, and I looked at it and I'm like, this is, am I allowed to swear or no? Yes. <laughs> this is like batshit. Like, what am I reading? And, you know, reading like, okay, these are the clinical standards, but at the end of the day, it's within the clinician's professional discretion to make a decision. And I'm like, so basically that's just null and void. And it just reading through it and my brain was just on fire and comparing it to SOC7. And I'm like, this is insane. Like I get, you know, that kind of just drove me over the edge. Um, And you know, reading the detransitioners um, cases and so on, and reading how quickly they were pushed through, especially like in the pediatric model, uh, some in the adult model, but ma- it was mainly like the, you know, the pediatric and adolescent patients that I'm like, wow, like this was not yeah. evidence-based care at all. They were literally, it's just like, yep, this is who you are, here you go, um, without realizing that that's exactly what happened to me, um, you know, just kind of looking and seeing that, but also um, I was on track to switch over to social work as a major. So I wanted to be um, a licensed social worker and work in that regard and work in case management. And so of course, seeing all this, I'm just like, there was like, where were the case managers? Like where were, you know, all of this is just, it it set my brain on fire. So that's kind of what motivated me to go on Twitter and then talking with people and reading stories. And then like, wait, I only had like two appointments with a therapist and I've been having these weird thoughts in my head of like, what if you'd want to go back, right? Make offhand comments. That's like, it's lucky. I don't regret my transition. Cause if I did, I'd be screwed. Ha ha ha. Um, and so then it kind of switched to, well, I've transitioned. I'm not detransitioning because I don't think I can detransition because look at me. And then people, of course, they, they were just like, oh, it's fine. You can, you can detransition. You're a beautiful woman. Like they, they don't know what I look like. Um, and like, I'm saying like, I have a relatively deep voice and they're like, no, it's fine. Like there's, there's some people that are just like, oh, you're a beautiful woman either way. And like, just telling all of these things on Twitter. And finally I just got fed up and I was like, you know what? Screw all of you. Like if you want like a kind of a 
a, an image or a picture of what you're dealing with here. Like th this is this is what happens. Like, and I just posted that video, no expectations, hoping to shut some people up, and then it just exploded. Yeah, I remember you. You said something along the lines of this is this is what uh, five years of testosterone does to a female, or something like that. And then, yeah, it, it the, uh, the 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 really defensive trans community kind of took that and ran. They're like, oh, you take testosterone and then you complain that it masculinizes, it masculinizes you. And they just took it completely out of context. And then you had Ty Turner, Contra points, and basically like just all these massive uh, uh, influencers just acting like bullying children, essentially. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And also everybody like citing like the hairline thing, because I talk about hair loss. Um, you know, because I, I do have a fair bit of hair loss for, you know, a, at the time, 21-year-old, 22-year-old now, um, male pattern baldness. And I, I did say that I was experiencing the precursors of androgenic alopecia prior to testosterone because of PCOS, but it was not nearly this severe. And this, like the amount of hair loss I've experienced happened while I was on testosterone within the past couple of years. Um you know, and I talk about it as a side effect, because I can tell you that it, that wouldn't have happened had I not taken testosterone. And in, in the in the um, context of talking about living socially as a woman, again, having, you know, a noticeable amount of male pattern baldness is a factor on top of the voice, on top of the body hair, on top of a lot of other things that might make that more difficult. And that's the context that it was given in, not just when, mm -hmm. you know, this was a side effect that I was told about, and it happened, I'm upset. It's in the context of living socially as a woman, all of these masculinizing effects are, you know, going to make things a little more difficult. And yeah, and they're not reversible. That male pattern baldness isn't reversible. If you stop taking testosterone, your hair isn't going, I mean, some people do experience some hair regrowth if the follicles aren't completely dead yet, but once those follicles are dead, they're dead. So it's not like it's a reversible effect. So I didn't, yeah, um, I wasn't, I didn't get the feeling you were complaining that, oh, I took testosterone and I was masculinized. I think you were just highlighting that some of those effects are permanent. And so you can't just walk back, you know, easily. You, you have to live with those effects. Yeah. And I, I mean, regardless of whether anybody, you know, seeks out transition and, you know, they transition five, 10 years down the line, that, that was the right decision for them. Or you're somebody in my situation where that wasn't the right decision. Um, you know, it's, it's also really interesting because with the Ty Turner thing, basically him posting like, yeah, and I, he, he said, I think he said that he was a minor when he started testosterone. I, but regardless, he, he I said, think he's like, a teenager. Yeah. Oh, teenager. Um, mm -hmm. when he started testosterone, he was on testosterone for eight years and he has a full head of hair, stay mad bald, and then posted a selfie of himself. Well, first of all, Ty, he does have some, um, hair loss in the front that he was trying to hide with his hair. I saw that. And um, second of all, what I loved was people like um, trans guys and some trans women were starting to get upset in the comments saying, wait, but I have male pattern baldness. And, you know, like, hold on a second. Like, I deal with this thing. Are you like saying this about me? And then Ty was like, no, no, bald is hot. Bald is in. If you're bald, like you're a bald king, a bald queen. Like he was starting to walk it back because his own following was like, hold on, hold on a second. Like, this is something we deal with. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like the whole point of that wasn't to be like, oh, you know, I did this thing and now I'm bald and I'm really mad about it. It It's just like, I, I can't undo this. 
this especially to all the people that are just like oh you have no pound and bonus just take finasteride just take spironolactone just take minoxidil and i'm like yeah. it's not or just get a hair transplant yeah just chill out 15 to twenty thousand dollars on a hair transplant that may or may not stick so yeah, ask ask the the trans women with male pattern baldness how easy it is to just you know regrow hair on their heads yeah really yeah. and like even with the finasteride thing like i had a couple of people and i was trying to get into conversation like i was in the beginning i was trying to have civil um level-headed conversations with some of the trans rights activists my mistake i realized the error in my ways a little bit now um because that discourse just did not stay civil but people were like well if you're complaining so much like what's stopping you from taking finasteride it's like i i guess there probably is um clinical trials of finasteride in women um specifically for um either male pattern baldness or female pattern baldness but i you know from what little time i spent in nursing school finasteride is a medication for benign prostatic hyperplasia that inhibits tht it's meant for men and I specifically learned that at least with pregnant women, you're not supposed to handle it. And then in some labels, it says no women should handle finasteride or 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. So yeah, I'm going to take that for life to deal with my hair loss. Yes, that is, I'm having a side effect from one drug. Okay, just take another drug. Okay, just take another drug. And then it just piles up on top of each other. And what if I don't want to take more drugs? You know, if the solution shouldn't be, oh, you're having this issue. Here's a pill. And then that was just like, oh, you're just mad at medicine. And I'm I'm like, uh -huh. okay, this is not going anywhere. And it wasn't really speaking to your original point. As, as Aaron said earlier, there was some there's some important context missing in how they interpreted what you were saying. It's it, you weren't saying that bald is an awful thing for all people and there's nothing you can do about it. That wasn't that wasn't your point. I mean, your point was these are the effects that have happened to your body, some of which isn't reversible. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you, were, you were addressing the people who were basically saying, oh, yeah, you're a beautiful young woman, just detransition, which not, not that that isn't true. But it's like you were saying, look at this, like you're addressing that audience. And yeah. yeah, it was taken well out of hand. Well, yeah. And like the biggest thing, like I'm not on TikTok, but I um, know some people that are on TikTok that would show me some of the videos. And one person made a compilation of apparently, I don't know who started this, but apparently um, the tagline for me was, oh, that Baldi transitioner is just mad that he didn't turn into an Ulu anime boy. Like, I, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> like, why? Well, you I know where never... that comes from because some people are transitioning in order to be an avatar boy. I, why, would, I, why would they assume that, that you were unhappy that you didn't achieve that unless some people are transitioning for that reason? Yeah, I yeah, I but see, it's interesting because I was never like on Tumblr or anything, and I didn't really have like a local LGBT community. Um, wherever I went, except I went to Philly Trans Wellness Conference in 2019, I have always, always been the only trans person in the room that I knew of, at least. Or maybe there was, mm -hmm. you know, some self people that weren't out and so on. But I have always been the only one of me. Ever, anywhere period even in like lgbt spaces locally which i didn't even frequent so and i live in a fairly conservative area so for most of that um i was stealth but even in like the you know the gay people that i knew no one was like deeply entrenched in tumblr nobody was deeply entrenched in these online you know queer communities where like so i i wasn't even aware that this was something that was happening kind of like 
um, before I hopped on Twitter and, you know, was seeing stuff on Instagram and stuff. I'm like, oh, they're not like teaching like queer theory in schools like that. Like they're just making this stuff up. Like, you know, no one's like transitioning in middle school because they saw stuff online. Like that's ridiculous. I, I was a skeptic because that was not my experience. Um, like I had to fight my school just to even let me use my new name, which finally I said was a domestic violence issue, um, which is true. Um, you know, I changed my stuff legally. And even so, I only went by my initials. I didn't even go by a new name. I went by my initials, but that was a fight. Um, you know, so I I never, I the idea that people would transition to look like the Ulu anime boy was like so foreign to me. And even now I'm like, that's happening. That's a thing that's happening, but I guess it is. <laughs> That's so that's really interesting is you you like so you're 100% not and I don't mean this in a derogatory way towards anyone who is but you were 100% not a Rajdi kid you you were you came upon this out of I mean yes you found it online but I mean that we find everything online now but it wasn't like you were externally influenced into a trans identity by your social sphere and by stuff that was inundating you online like most of the uh the, the the younger FTMs are is you it was very much, very much like a pragmatic uh, solution that you sought out yourself. For a, it helps you know with providing uh, kind of that, that social concept of safety that you needed based on early life experiences, and then also was a solution to homophobia. And it's very, it's a very pragmatic kind of much more like the 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 male to female homosexual. We we talk in very uh, scientific terms here, so are very uh, explicit. But like it's, that's a typical trajectory of the of the male to female uh, homosexual transsexual is very pragmatic reasons for for transitioning, and it's like it's like it's socially helpful and uh, very much. Uh, it's just interesting that, that your trajectory is much more followed that than mo- most of your sex and age cohort, which is much more about the ideology and the and the and the social influences and whatnot. So that that is interesting. Yeah, and that's one thing that I find as well is that um, specifically with like some of the older detransitioned community, like uh, late twenties, early mid thirties, um, a lot of um, like the homosexual women, the les like the le- detrans lesbian community, I. Uh, for lack of a better term, identify with their trajectory a lot more than I do my own age group. Um, Because for me, I had to fight my environment. I made my life substantially harder in order to transition. Um, And I I got harassed. I got bullied. You know, I eventually had to stop using the bathroom altogether during my senior year because the girls were getting uncomfortable with the changes um, I was experiencing on testosterone. I was in this weird in-between phase. So it, it really disrupted a lot of stuff in my life and in my school environment um, in order to physically and socially transition. And I received very little support while I was doing it. And even while I was in college, um, you know, like I had a friend that she said she was understanding and I was supposed to go off to college as stealth. In retrospect, I was not passing it. I thought I was passing it. So that I, I, I thought, oh, this is my opportunity to just go off and be a dude in college. And then she just proceeded to out me to everybody in the school of music before I got there. I'm like, thank you. Plot twist, she's non-binary now. Um, so thank you for um, doing that for me. But I everybody knew anyways, because I looking back, I'm like, yeah, I still looked like a, a girl with a haircut, with a buzz cut, or like with a um, undercut. Um, gosh, where was I going with that? For um, you, I just oh, wanted yeah. to ask in terms of timeline stuff, I just wanted to ask, um, so, because we said, you know, when you first started the hormones and stuff, you were initially excited about it. 
And then it, it sounds like eventually that's that excitement started to be, you know, the brick started to come out of the wall. You started, that started to fall apart. So how long did that take to go from that period of excitement to starting to feel like, mm, I don't know if this was entirely uh, what I thought I was signing up for. Um, well, I think starting in like 2019, I started to have some doubts of like, is this exactly what I wanted or was this what I was expecting to happen? Um, but I wasn't really grappling with the side effects and the permanent effects of testosterone and what that would have. Um, like how that would impact my life either way until 2022, really. Um, it, it's interesting because even in like 2019, um, I was really seriously looking into bottom surgery. So at that time in 28, mid 2018, summer 2018, I had a double mastectomy. Um, and then like a few months later, I went off to college and so on. Um, and at that time I was watching more YouTube and all of that stuff. And there was, uh, kind of a movement of like trans medicalists also talking about like, you know, in order to be like true trans and like valid FTM, you need to have all the dysphoria. And so that included having bottom dysphoria, which I never had. Um, you know, and also like I was never in any sexual relationships in high school or college. Um, so, and I never planned to. Um, so for me, like that was kind of just like, it was a non-issue it didn't really matter to me I didn't have an issue with sitting down to pee that was like never a big thing for me but because I was starting to get entrenched in these like trans medicalist spaces some of which were like you need to have all the dysphoria including bottom dysphoria and you know slowly becoming obsessed over this I thought that like in order to be like true trans fully trans I need to have bottom surgery so I started looking into that and I slowly mm -hmm. kind of convinced myself I had bottom dysphoria and it bothered me but I'm not sure if it bothered me because I was trying to alleviate that dysphoria that wasn't there and that was making me uncomfortable or what have you but then also in thinking about all of that I was like hold on is this is this what I wanted to sign up for is this what I was expecting um but of course my um trade not trademark but like um my uh classic thing is ah, I don't have time for these feelings cram them down and they'll kind of rear its ugly head later and I'll deal with it then um uh, which I proceed to do for the next few years just in general too, also with mental health, depression, anxiety, childhood trauma, you know, it kind of pops up and I'm like, yeah, I don't have time for that. Just go away. When the trans identity started to unravel, did that start to like knowing all the, the emotions and the history that you had, you know, that fed into your decision to transition when the transition itself started to unravel, did you start to struggle again with some of those childhood memories and, and emotions? Um, well, it all kind of unraveled uh, in October, early November. Well, it was like late October that it was really hitting me um, that, you know, I had been telling myself, oh, I transitioned because I'm trans, because I have a male brain and because, you know, this is just who I am. But then when I finally was able to step back and be like, okay, some people transition for reasons other than being trans or having gender dysphoria that would be helped by transition. Let's look at your case and then realizing um, the reasons why I did what I did and also realizing that my mom was exactly right. And this was the worst case scenario she wanted to avoid and we didn't. Um, 
and then really realizing, and, and this is, and I don't think she knows this, but I transitioned in part because of her homophobia as well. Um, because she did not want a lesbian daughter at all. Um, and I thought it would make me more presentable in her eyes if I was straight. Um, cause that was a really big point of contention, um, between us. I, well, it, a few months before I had, uh, like found the trans space and so on, I admitted myself into inpatient psychiatric care, uh, some, or not summer, Christmas of 2016. And the cause of that mental health crisis was my mom found out I was in a relationship with a girl and she flipped her shit big time. And it was this really big thing. And she was going to cut me off from everything. You're losing your phone. You're losing your computer. I can't trust you. I can't believe you would do this to us. You know, you know, this is wrong. You know, this is immoral. Like I was talking to somebody. It wasn't like we were, you know, being promiscuous or anything. It was purely emotional, but it was such a big deal. And I was already dealing with depression. And finally, I, I spiraled so far that I'm like, if I don't get put in an inpatient facility, I'm going to do something. Like I'm going to attempt suicide if we don't put me somewhere safe. And then from there, that just started the gears turning of, okay, being a gay woman is unacceptable. How do I make myself more acceptable? So realizing all of that in October, of course, sent me borderline into another crisis, um, which is when I sought help. I didn't go inpatient. I went intensive outpatient for a couple of months, um, which is basically it's multiple levels of care. But in my case, it was uh, five days a week, seven hour days of just intensive talk group therapy, which I needed and was um, very beneficial. But to answer your question in the end, um, yes, it was it brought back a lot of memories. I'm curious how they, it, when you sought that help, how they talked about or or sort of, I don't know, how do they manage the trans issue in a way that, that was helpful for you? Um, so it's interesting because at first they were kind of just like, uh, like we, you know, we've never really dealt with this before, but we can try our best. Um, well, it's also, it, it was convenient because the facility that I went for intensive outpatient is where I went inpatient years before, and I was in regular adolescent outpatient therapy up until 2021 when, um, not joking, my therapist literally quit um, with a week's notice to flip houses with her boyfriend in South Carolina. Um, so she just like vanished. Um, and then my NP, my psych NP who was managing my meds went on maternity leave and they didn't find a replacement. So like within two weeks, my entire treatment team had just dissolved. So I stopped. And then of course I had the mental breakdown. So I had to go back, um, and seek treatment again. So they already had all my records from when I was originally first inpatient, including caring for me, um, you know, throughout the course of most of my transition, not transition related, they were never involved in like the transgender diagnosis or like the gender dysphoria diagnosis, but that was noted and the progress of my transition was noted in their records. So they did have that and they were able to look at that. That was easier for them. Uh, but at the same time, at first they were like, uh, we have no idea what we're doing. Uh, we're just kind of wing, we're gonna wing it. Um, but then eventually they were very open um, with me kind of bouncing ideas off of them. And then when I was like, I, I think I did this as a trauma response, I laid it out very simply. I think I did this as a trauma response because of the child sexual abuse and because of the fact that I was gay and them being trauma therapists, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then, okay, how can we build a treatment plan from here? So I actually, I'm very surprised. They have received it very well and I've found it pretty easy to work with them in regards to that. 
that's good. So it sounds like they just sort of held some neutral space for you to unpack things for yourself and, and draw some conclusions and didn't try to, you know, disagree with the connections that you were making or push you in any other direction. Yeah. And I, if I presented like a certain idea, maybe they would challenge it with like a different perspective or, you know, I'm listening to you um, tell these things, like, you know, say this stuff and like tell your story. Um, and you're saying that this is your interpretation. Well, might I offer maybe a different interpretation of things? You know, there, there's a little bit of challenging on that, but also they've been very cautious as well, just like in general with all of my care there, I've been extremely oppressed and frankly, very lucky um, to end up at a really good facility um, and with a very good treatment team that has been cautious and rigorous and is listening to me and collaborative rather than um, like talking down or making decisions without me or, you know, any of that stuff. What's your relationship with your mom like now? Uh, it's it's interesting. I live at home still. So, um, and I've lived at home mm -hmm. for most of the time um, that I've not been in college. Yeah, the goal is to move out this year because I'm, I'm 22, I'm going crazy. It's, it's interesting because I'm trying to create that space for myself and I'm trying to create my own identity and who I am, um, you know, without going like full off the deep end because essentially like growing up as a kid, like I was the hardcore fundamentalist Christian. That was my identity. And then like, I left the church and then I dove like headfirst into like the trans stuff and also like being a musician and just losing myself to a bunch of other things. Like I want to, you know, build a life as me and not just like the things that I do. Um, but it's hard when you're dealing with somebody that um, was kind of, for lack of a better term, it is still supportive of the transition that you're trying to run, um, roll back, if you will. Because she's very much like, oh, well, you always were stereotypically more male than female. You know, this makes more sense. And are you sure people are going to take you seriously as a woman? Like, you know, wouldn't it just be easier for you to stay as a dude? And, oh, you looked good as a, as a dude. You didn't look great as a woman, but you look good as a dude. Um, so kind of living with that and some of the feedback and also she does not like the fact that I am talking about this um, like in a video format. I mean, it, ultimately it's a safety concern. Like she's concerned that like people are gonna, you know, hunt me down and stuff like that, which I understand. Um, like people know the state I'm in, they don't know the area I'm in. And um, Miller is not my real last name. That was on purpose. Um, so people don't find me, um, but she's really concerned that I am putting my face out there and talking about this verbally. Um, so, you know, she's like, well, why are you talking upstairs? Oh, well, I'm doing an interview. I'm doing a, I'm like doing a Twitter space. I'm doing something. And she's like, really, again, like, just make sure that, you know, your identity is concealed and I don't like it. Um, so it's, it, it is causing a rift as well. How is she, how is she with the, with the, with you being a lesbian now? Is that, is that still an issue or? Um, it was an issue at first, but ultimately she finally just said, like, I just want you to be happy. And it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what I want. Because um, interestingly, like we both left religion, like she was raised like pretty conservative Christian, um, raised in Western Pennsylvania, which uh, we jokingly call that Trump her territory. You know, so that that's kind of the area that she grew up in. And then the church that we were in, of course, they kind of agreed with 
throwing the gays off of the buildings. That's where they stood with the homosexuals. And she very much was like, you know, I've had homosexual coworkers and like, they're fine, but my daughter's not going to be a lesbian. That's not going to happen. And now I think she understands that I'm not just doing it for shits. Like I'm not doing it to spite her. And, you know, I'm, if, if a relationship happens and it happens to be with a woman, I've told her like, you're just going to deal. You're just going to have to deal. Cause I'm not going to hide it anymore. And she's like, if that's what will make you happy, I just want you to be happy. You said something interesting before we hit record. Uh, you said something really interesting about medical records. I wonder if you can just kind of explain one of your observations about your medical records. So um, originally, uh, when I started with the uh, intensive outpatient program, I was identified in my medical records as a female to male transgender individual. And um, I, I remember seeing that. And then in order to continue with a regular outpatient, uh, services because there is an outpatient DBT program that my treatment team wanted me to do that's a year long but in order to do that um, I have to be um, with a primary care provider uh, in the same healthcare system so I had to switch primary care providers which is fine because I've had not so great experiences in the past year um, with primary care so I was willing to switch that was fine had my intake with primary care in late December and I was meeting with the nurse practitioner she was a little confused, but it was fine. She thought I was like male to female at first. Like I was, you know, a biological man and I want to transition to woman. And, you know, then we straighten that up and so on. But then um, we're doing discharge paperwork like last week. And I'm looking over my therapist's shoulder because we're going through like, um, like um, relevant diagnoses or like in Epic, which is the electronic medical records uh, software that my healthcare system uses. Uh, I was looking over at the problem list, which is just like the list of diagnoses, and I see male to female transgender individual. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on a second. What? And I'm like, well, how did that get in there? And we looked, I'm like, Tim, like, what, what is this? And he, he looks, he's like, oh, uh, male to female transgender individual. That's not you, right? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a biological woman. How'd that get in there? Um, and he was looking, he's like, well, I can't change it. So I don't know what to do about that. So we made a note of it. And um, then I was logging in for like a telehealth appointment um, for the outpatient intake. And I saw that it was added from my primary care. So um, I've talked to two other practitioners, neither one of them can change it. So now I'm just a male to female transgender individual. I'm a trans woman now, according to my healthcare system. <laughs> And is that is that because so they have to have you logged as trans because you have a history of of uh, you know transition related healthcare, um, and then they also have to have a gender marker. And so it's like, well, you were trans one way, and now you'll just be trans the other way. Is that maybe how it works in the system? Well, it's interesting because in Epic, um, there's three designations for uh, gender or sex. So there is the biological sex that a person is. Uh, the legal sex or gender that a person is and what their preferred gender identity. So in the system, it says that I am biologically female, legally male, and prefer to be female. So it says I'm biologically female in there. So how is, if I'm biologically female, how am I a male to female? I mean, I understand some of the nomenclature within the G-transition community is female to male to female, but like, I, I, I don't know where that came from when you can clearly see that I started at female. That's where I started. But also uh, another issue when I posted about that, because I, I posted it kind of as like a one-off on Twitter. Like, well, looks like I'm a trans woman now. Um, 
but then uh therapist i think it was stephanie Wynn was like um like she reposted it was like you know how how does this work if you can't identify detransitioners as having a history of medical transition without identifying them as trans and to investigate that um, I, I could look at like applicable diagnoses um, in like the portal when I was signing in and I could like suggest a change. And the only way to, she was right. The only way to indicate that I have a history of medical transition is to self-identify as transgender. So I, I understand that, you know, detransition is still a fairly new topic, you know, within the trans community the medical community and all of this stuff. Um, so it's going to take a while for the health system, like the healthcare systems and the EMRs to kind of keep up. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well then how, how am I identified in the system? Do I stay as a male to female? Do I, I click the identification? The closest one I could find was transgender with a history of gender affirming care, because there's, there's like at least 12 different options, like transgender with a history of sexual reassignment surgery. Well, I haven't had SRS. I've had surgery, but I haven't had you know, bottom surgery, like what is considered SRS, what is considered gender affirming surgery, or, you know, there was just so many different things, but all of it was, un, you know, with the stipulation that the person is still trans identified. Right. So which is not trans true. without SRS, but you've had a hysterectomy, they may not be aware. Like if you didn't select the SRS option, they but had the hysterectomy, they might not be aware then that you've had the hysterectomy, they just depending on how they're defining SRS. Yeah. And again, that's the thing, because I know in certain spaces like SRS, I, I'm just going off of some of the stuff I've seen online. SRS refers to any form of surgery, which, OK, maybe a double mastectomy would be locked into that. But maybe it's also just like anything dealing with reproductive um, organs or bottom surgery or anything like that. That would be classed as SRS. Well, OK, the double mastectomy doesn't fall into that, but also it is applicable because it's part of my surgical history. So there's really no definite way or concise way to identify that I've uh, to correctly identify that, OK, I do have a surgical history and a like a medication history of taking cross-sex hormones and doing all this stuff. But I'm also not trans now. And like, I'm trying to pull it back. There's, there's no way to do that concisely. The closest thing we could figure out was uh, trans with a history of gender affirming surgery. And then in a notes saying like detransitioning. But also that's, it's not something that you can see at a first glance. So if somebody's just looking through before going into an appointment with you and like looking through the problem list, okay, this, that, the other thing, trans with history of surgery, got it. Um, but then they walk in and we have to have this conversation. Yeah, unless there's something pointing people to that specific note. Yeah, I agree. Like over time, that note's just going to be buried in your health record somewhere with no mm -hmm. reference for anyone to, to go looking for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly I think that's um, something that I would like to see Epic potentially change. But at the same time, I also understand that that's, that's a relatively benign issue. Um, compared to a lot of other things that detransitioners deal with in terms of seeking healthcare. Fortunately, I have not had the experience of being turned away by healthcare providers, but there are some people on Twitter that have stated that they have tried um, to be seen by endocrinology, OBGYN, um, surgeons, uh, potentially for revisions with complications regarding surgery, um, and they've been turned away or denied care. Uh, I've been, again, I haven't experienced that so far. Um, but, you know, okay, I'm identified as a trans woman in the system, but I'm still getting care and it's still pretty good care, according to me. 
um, and they're listening to me and we're taking our time and doing our due diligence. I, I'm pretty happy with that. I'll take being identified as a trans woman in their system over not receiving care at all. You're right, though, that that is going to have to be addressed, you know, as more and more people do detransition, de as a lot of us are anticipating, that is something that designers of the EMRs are going to need to look at to make sure that that's captured and make sure that a person's whole health history is accessible. Yeah, because Epic, sorry, Epic has accommodated for um, certain things, at least like on the inpatient side. Okay, so they've accommodated for somebody's legal gender, their birth sex, and their preferred gender identity, but also like, a, for lack of a better term, like a reproductive organs um, survey. So it kind of goes through the list like, okay, this person is um, biologically male. And, you know, most of the time they don't like fill this out, but like there are some cases where it would be valid to fill it out. Um, like, okay, do they have like um, all of their reproductive organs? What do they have? What don't they have? Um, you know, that they've accommodated for that at least, you know, and that probably took a little bit of time. So I understand that this will take time, but at the same time, it, it is something that the EMR is going to have to accommodate for. And, the, you know, the newer language of, you know, how EC, the trans is trying to grapple with detransition and you see them trying to write it into the trans narrative in a way that, that doesn't threaten or compromise the, the gender ideology. So, they, I mean, they're talking about it a lot more in terms of this gender journey that you can just, depending on your feelings, you can become this gender and then you can become this gender and, and then it's fluid and you can swing back and forth as though that's effortless and, and seamless which, you know, in, ter in terms of an EMR, like that kind of speaks to what you're saying. I mean, if, if that is all that matters, if biological sex isn't really relevant, that it's all just about your identity and, and the fluidity of identity, then then to them, it's almost like, well, what is the difference between a trans man be becoming female versus a biological man becoming female? Like it's all, if it's all identity-based, then I guess you are a trans woman now. Yeah, and that was that was a joke. Um, unfortunately, most people there's a fair bit of people on my Twitter that um, do understand sarcasm and can take a joke. Um, and there's also a fair number of people that don't. Um, so just as a joke, one day after talking with a couple of people, how ridiculous it is that I am a trans woman now, um, I, I jokingly tweeted something very short that I was like, "Can I identify as a trans woman?" Discuss below. And so that kind of led into its own thing. And people are like, well, why would you want to identify as a trans woman? I'm like, well, my nurse practitioner told me I'm a trans woman now. It's in my records. I'm valid. <laughs> They're just, um, you know, there were some people that were taking it way too seriously. Like, no, it's all like, it's all evil. It's all wrong. Like those, you know, more of the gender critical. And then there were some people that were kind of playing along that was like, well, if you inhabit this, uh, the social role of a trans woman, then you are valid as a trans woman. Um, which also kind of dovetails because I, I do have, um, well, I don't know if you've had uh, Michelle uh, from Canada. I, I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, she said that there was a while, like when with the one of the places that she lived, her neighbor just thought that she was a trans woman. So I thought of that when this one person was saying, well, if you inhabit the social role of a trans woman, then you are a trans woman. And I'm like, well, if I look like a trans woman, then I am one. Therefore, like, this is my identity now. Um, kind of as a joke. <laughs> I mean, um, how do you how do you know, Casey, that you're a woman? I mean, what does it feel like to be a woman? I have no idea. I, I look, we've done an entire documentary on what is a woman, um, and I, I still don't know. I think we need to do another one. I yeah, 
there was another pithy thing that somebody posted that was like in some sort of mythology. I think it had to do with like Aphrodite. And it was like, um, in order to be a woman, like this woman had to like lose half her nose and get stung by a thousand bees. And a bunch of us were like, damn it, we're not women then because we didn't do that. We still have our noses. <laughs> so we've been doing it wrong this whole time. Yeah, well, thank you we... so much for being here with us, Casey. This has been this has been great. Yeah, no, this has been fun too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great Absolutely. to meet you. Meet you more, not quite in person, but a little feels a little more in person than over over Twitter. Yeah, Twitter is special. I, I prefer speaking rather than tweeting at people. So yeah, this has been nice, especially to put um, faces to names. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>